Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm John Green. I'm your host. Here we are in week 774 of COVID pandemic 2020. At least it feels like that's how many weeks this has gone on. Um, schools are getting ready to start back in some places. And so I've had conversations with a lot of my friends this week about what they're doing, what their children are doing, what everything looks like. And so some kids are staying home at their parents' choice because the parents had a choice to do that, to do distance learning. Some are going back to school. Some are staying home because they didn't have any choice. That's the only way their school is operating. So it's been still continuing an odd, odd year. Most churches aren't worshiping together, and it's just beyond strange at this point. And we can just hope that we begin moving in some direction that is more familiar and comfortable to us. Sometimes it's good for us to get knocked out of our comfort zones, though. It's an important thing because we can cruise along doing things wrong. We can cruise along with bad attitudes. We can, When I say bad attitudes, I don't mean just you could be a miserable human being. I mean, we could have bad attitudes and bad ways of thinking that need to be corrected. And sometimes everything's got to come to a screeching halt and nothing can be familiar to us anymore before we can finally see the flaws in our own thinking. The flaws in the way we judge situations and things. It's been a long season of that for us. Not just in America, but in, in much of the developed world. We've had this long season of five months so far to hopefully reevaluate our lives, to reprioritize our lives, because things that had been priorities for many people just can't be anymore. Those avenues are not available any longer, or they're so dramatically changed that what do you do? Can it really be that important? And what is being frequently said is, I guess that's not as important as we as a society have made it. And so we've been forced in some ways to think about things in a different way. And sometimes that just means out of sight, out of mind, things that used to be incredibly important to us. It's an interesting time to think about that because we have a couple of interesting lessons all three of them, in fact, that sort of fall into that same category. Jesus is challenging in the gospel lesson, which is Matthew 15, 10 to 18. He begins that gospel lesson by challenging things that are near and dear as beliefs to the Jews. He called the people to them and said, hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. The disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Fortunately, Jesus didn't say, Well, that was the point, and I don't care that they were offended. They, it's true. They can be offended at truth if they like. It's not what he said, though. He says, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Leave them alone. They're blind guides, and the blind lead the blind both will fall into a pit. And so 
ultimately what this is about. He comes to the end of this. He said, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So the, the thing that prompted him in this was the Pharisees fussing because Jesus' disciples were not washing their hands before they ate in a certain situation. Seems like a small thing, although right now we're supposed to wash our hands seven, eight million times a day. And it's the most important thing, apparently, to keep us safe from the coronavirus. So it's a big deal to us right now in our society. And there are people for whom it's always a big deal. They're called obsessive compulsives. Um, we had a son who, when he was little, had an obsessive-compulsive thing about washing his hands. He'd wash them till they bled, because he washed them so much. But that's not an understanding of Judaism at the time, at least, that it wasn't obsessive-compulsive. It was fear-based. It was fear of the world, fear of contamination by contact with the world. And so there are huge numbers of tractates in the Talmud that deals specifically with washing your hands, when you have to wash it, how you have to wash them, how many times do you pour the water over them, what blessing do you say when you wash your hands. I'm going to run through as quickly as possible some of these. You have to wash your hands, according to the law, before eating a meal containing bread. Uh, except it only applies to bread made from wheat, cultivated barley, spelt, wild barley, and oats. And you have to do it a specific way. You have to take the cup and pour the water over your hands. Otherwise, if you don't do that, according to the Gemara of the Babylonian Talmud, then you're actually making yourself unpure or impure, and it risks divine punishment in the form of sudden destruction or poverty. Not if you don't wash before the meals, but if you don't wash the right way and say the right blessing, then you're risking sudden destruction or poverty. If you're traveling, and if you're going as far as four biblical miles, or you have to be able to go at least four biblical miles to get water for washing prior to eating bread, if there's a known water source within that distance. So if you want to eat a meal containing bread and you don't have any water in the house, you, you're obliged to go at least four miles if it's required to be able to get that. Now, it only applies if that's in the direction you're traveling. However, if you've already passed the water source, you're, you're obl obliged to go back a mile and get it if it's within that distance. Then they also had a uh, practice of washing their hands after a meal before reciting the blessing after the meal. Not afterwards, but before. And the reason for that is that a lot of the salt in that region actually came from a place that's very familiar to us as Christians, and that is Sodom. And so because they didn't eat the utensils, they were their hands, they were obliged to go and wash off the salt of Sodom which may have been served with the meal, because that causes blindness. If it gets on your fingers and then you touch your eyes, 
I remember there was a, a belief that other things caused blindness when I was a kid, but that they're obliged to wash their hands to keep the salt of Sodom off their fingers because this could be a bad thing. And then um, it's they believed at the same time that just eating itself has the potential to diminish our sense of holiness. It causes us to be so consumed with gratifying a need of our own that we would forget the needs of others. And so to wash away the salt of Sodom is to wash away the selfishness and indifference to others that's caused by gratifying our own need to eat. So our eyes have been blinded to the needs of others. So there's a spiritual blindness as well as a physical blindness that they're trying to deal with. Sometimes there used to be, not now in most places, a practice that you had to wash your hands before you eat a piece of food that's been dipped in a liquid, which then clings to that piece. So if you had a chocolate-covered strawberry, you'd have to do it, um, except for fruit. Was it Well, fruit was an exception to that. So, so anything you dip, which would be, well, a salad, for instance, you, you'd have to wash your hands before that. You have to wash your hands before prayer. That one doesn't have to require a cup, but, well, it might in some places. Their priests have to wash their hands before they give the high priestly blessing, even now. Um, there are many different ways. Here's a few. <laughs> um, quickly. After touching part of the body which is dirty or customarily covered, such as the private parts, back, armpits, inside of a nose or ear, the scalp, but not if one just touched the hair, or sweat from your body, or your shoes. Upon leaving a latrine, lavatory, or bathhouse is a symbol both of bodily cleanliness and of removing human impurity, and the human impurity will be the discharge that came from it. If you look at Leviticus 15, you'll see all kinds of information about the discharge from your body and what has to happen with that. They, you need to wash your hands upon leaving a cemetery or after cutting your hair or your nails. Um, there's all kinds of things in Leviticus 15 that tell you that discharges from your body need to you need to wash after there's any kind of a discharge or if you've come in contact with somebody who's had a discharge from their body in any shape, form, or fashion then you have to wash immediately and you're unclean until the evening. So there's certain marital activities, for instance, which render you unclean. And you have to then bathe and or get away from everything. You're unclean until evening. So you would be a danger to other people, for instance. And you'd have to stay away from them. And so that's the context Jesus is talking about here, and he's saying, you're, you're obsessed with the wrong thing. What you need to be obsessed about is what goes into the heart, because what comes out of the heart is the thing that actually defiles you. And that's part of the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, a man that lusts after a woman in his heart has committed adultery with her. So this plays into that same very thing. Guard your heart. It's the data-driven analysis that says garbage in and garbage out. Both those things are true at the same time. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. Be careful, little eyes, what you see, because you're pressing things in to your heart and your mind. And then those things 
need to be dealt with because otherwise they're going to come out in incredibly unhealthy ways and we're dealing with that right now right with, with the ideas of porn and the, the problem of porn and the, the child sexual things that are going on so jesus is speaking to a prejudice that the pharisees have expressed against his disciples for failing to do these things because that hand washing thing that that concern of defilement by being in contact with the non-jewish world is the motivation for all these things it went it took leviticus 15 and turned it on its ear and said it's it's not the stuff because that's the, the issue in Leviticus 15 is what's come out of somebody that defiles them. But what Jewish law had done was turn that around and say the world is unclean. And so I'm protecting myself from the defilement that I contract when I come in contact with you. And so it, it, it shows something about the attitude of Judaism at that time to the world itself. It considered itself pure and the world defiled. And so it separated itself in that way. And then the rest of this story, this, this gospel lesson today is about the Syrophoenician woman, where Jesus goes away from where he was and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, which is on the border of uh, Israel, but it's outside. And so it's a Gentile land, similar to this, they would have considered the Samaritans, a similar kind of thing. So behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. She makes a strong statement about who Jesus is, Lord, son of David. Those are strong words that disciples all didn't use at that time. But her daughter, she says, is severely oppressed by a demon. You know, we see these things where we get Gentiles coming to Jesus like that, um, like the centurion who comes and, and asks Jesus to come and heal his daughter and Jesus is going to go with him, and he says, you don't need to do that. I'm a, I'm a man under authority, and I have under people under my authority, and I command them that these things happen. He says, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Again, a high statement of belief about who Jesus is. But speak the word only, and my son shall be healed. And so Jesus speaks the word, but he marvels at the faith of the centurion, this Gentile, that believes that who Jesus is. I'm not worthy for you to come into my roof, but speak the word only. And makes these incredible statements about him. And Jesus marvels at his faith. This woman, oh Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But Jesus didn't answer a word, just didn't say anything. And the disciples said, please send her away. She's crying out after us. This, she didn't just say it once. She's just saying it again and again. <clears throat> and he answered, I... It, them, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wow. Pretty offensive. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. There's an idea out there right now that that woman taught Jesus not to be prejudiced. Did you hear me? There's an idea that that woman taught Jesus not to be prejudiced. It begins with bad Christology. 
It begins, the notion of that begins with a bad idea, and that is, is that, that Jesus is something other than the incarnate Son of God, fully human and fully divine. It begins with the idea that he needed to be taught something, period, end of sentence. Jesus didn't need to be taught anything. We've just come from a passage that I explained to you has to do with you don't contact the defilement by contact with the world. It's what you're putting into yourself and what's coming out of you that defiles you. You're responsible. You're, you have agency over these things. You have power, actually, over these things. And so we've come directly from that into this encounter. Jesus knew what he was going to do. He knew he was going to heal this girl. He's exposing something to the disciples that they questioned about him before. Don't you understand that the Pharisees were upset about what you said? You know what? They were upset about it too. I pastored the church long enough to know that when somebody comes to me and says, the people are really upset about this, that, and the other thing. What they're saying to you is, I don't like that. I'm putting it in somebody else's mouth. But I don't like that. And so when they say this to Jesus, he sees something about them that gets exposed right here. Why did he go to Tyre and Sidon? If he had a problem with Gentiles. See, so the story already begins to unravel about the idea that she's teaching him something. He chose to go to Tyre and Sidon where the Gentiles are. So he's bringing himself into contact with these Gentiles, which can defile you. Except Jesus is making an object here. He, he went there for this reason in the same way that he went to the country of the Gerasenes or the Gadarenes, whichever way you want to say it, in order, just for one reason, to meet the demoniac who was among the tombs with the pigs. He's bleeding. All that. He, he goes to Tyre and Sidon because of her. That's what actually happened. She didn't teach him anything. He's teaching his disciples that the prejudice that they expressed by putting him in the mouth of the Pharisees, and that was true, they were upset, you can guarantee that. Um, but he's, he's flipping that here and challenging them with their attitudes. He heals her because she had great faith. She persevered. In spite of being ignored and rejected, she persevered because she had found the one who could do something. In the same way, the woman with the issue of blood persevered, touched Jesus. Read Leviticus 15. You don't touch anybody if you have an uncleanness, if you have a discharge. It's the same perseverance of faith. This is my only hope. She's heard this woman has somewhere of Jesus and about Jesus. As I said, it's on the border of Israel, and so the, his fame had spread to these Gentiles, and boom, here she comes. And Jesus heals her and marvels at her faith. Name me a time when he marveled at the disciples' faith. What we hear last week in that lesson, oh, you of little faith, Peter, you walked on the water, but you of little faith. He's going to have to do that again, isn't he, the night before the crucifixion? And then when they all leave him, again and again and again, this woman perseveres in spite of 
being ignored and in spite of being rejected. And so he proves something there. Paul speaks into that in our Romans lesson today, which is the first couple of verses of Romans 11 and then the last four verses of Romans 11. So it's 1 to 2 and 29 and 32. And he says, he says, I asked you, has God rejected his people? Uh-uh, no, no, no. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, now you've received mercy because of their disobedience. So too have they now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown you, they may also receive mercy. For God has consigned all the disobedience that he may have mercy on all. The biggest problem the early church had was twofold. And it was caused by one thing their embrace of the Gentiles. It nearly split the church itself in half. And we know that over the Jerusalem Council, having to make a decision about what to do about the question of the Gentiles in Acts 15, but then it also became then something under attack by Judaism itself because it didn't require enough of Gentile converts. There was always a problem in the church. It was the biggest problem Paul had in his ministry where the people that were called the Judaizers in the church objecting to his mission to the Gentiles and the Jews on the outside who objected to his mission to the Gentiles and the idea of them being brought into the covenant without circumcision. That's why Paul ends up in prison, ends up dying, is because he is accused of bringing uncircumcised people into the temple. He didn't do it. But that's that that would have been the worst possible thing you could do. That's not a small crime. You defiled the temple of God if you brought those people in where he did. It's a serious problem, is this idea of defilement. But Paul, this Jew of Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees, becomes the one who is actually the missionary to the Gentiles. He'd been prepared for that since his birth because he was a citizen of Rome, remember? And he was a citizen of Rome because his father was a merchant and he was somebody who was important in Rome and in Judaism. And so Paul had always had one foot in both worlds. He was a, a, not a zealot, that's a specific term, but he was a guy that Judaism meant everything to, and yet much of his life was lived outside in a world of commerce where he was surrounded primarily by Gentiles. And so he could speak the language, as it were. He could navigate that territory better. And so he becomes, Paul the Jew of Jews becomes the one who opens the covenant through the proclamation of the blood of Jesus to the Gentile world. It's an amazing and unusual thing, but we see God doing that again and again and again throughout Scripture where he takes his people to a place they may not necessarily want to be, but they become then a proclamation to the people who they're among. Daniel, for instance, is a great example of that. Nehemiah is a great example of that. Both of them lived in non-Jewish environments much of their lives, because they'd been exiled with their people, but they became a witness to the power of God in the cultures they lived in, one in Babylon, the other in Susa, in the Persian Bible as well. 
And so you've got these two guys where God always sends these people into the rest of the world as a witness to his power. And the Magi who come at the birth of Jesus are the descendants of the Chaldeans who Daniel saved by interpreting the king's dream. They believed in Daniel's God. They knew the scriptures that they had been given up through Daniel, and they knew about this star, and they came because they believed in Daniel's God. So his witness had survived there in Babylon for six or seven hundred years because of what he had done. And so the, the Genesis lesson today is Joseph. We skip a ton of Genesis to get from where we were last week with him being sold into slavery to today. Because today what we've got is um, Genesis 45, 1 to 15. It's when he reveals himself to his brothers who have come now a couple of times to Egypt. And Joseph is essentially the CFO of Egypt. And his, his brothers come, and he can't control himself any longer because he loves his brothers and he wants to reveal himself to them. And so he tells his servants, make everyone else go away from me. And then they stay, the brothers stay behind, but they still don't know that that's who this guy is. It's the brother that they had intended to send into slavery. And he's weeping so loud that the Egyptians heard and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And he looks to his brothers and he says, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers couldn't answer him. They were dismayed in his presence. They were scared to death because of what they had done or attempted to do to him. And then he says, come near to me. And they came near. And he says, I'm your brother Joseph. You sold him to Egypt. Don't be distressed or angry with yourselves. God sent me before you to preserve life. The famine had been in these land two years. There's five years still to go. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And then he says interesting stuff. There's a lot of relational language in this chapter. He's made me a father to Pharaoh and lord over his house, ruler over the land of Egypt. Hurry and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. And I'll provide for you. Go get him. And then he fell on his brother, Benjamin, who is his 100% brother, and weeps on him. And then Benjamin weeps on him. And then he kissed all his brothers and he wept on them, all his half-brothers. They had different mothers. <clears throat> Only he and Benjamin had the same mother, Rachel. And then his brothers talked with him after this outpouring of emotion towards them. God sent him to live in Egypt in order to provide for, for the family during this time of famine, yes, but also as a witness to God himself. This Joseph who had a wisdom beyond the wisdom of his own people, he sends down as a witness. And so then there's a separation. He wants his people to live out in Goshen. And so he's got to make a separation that the Egyptians don't like people who tend sheep and goats. So we'll be able to live in Goshen. We'll be able to live separately, but we'll, we'll be part of Egypt. And they were part of Egypt until, as we're told in the beginning of Exodus, and then a new Pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph. 
didn't know the history, didn't care about that history, is really what it's saying. Is but that persevered. That memory of Joseph persevered for four hundred years. It's a powerful thing. This witness of God sending us into the world. Don't be afraid of the world. Don't consider yourselves defiled by contact with the world. Bring God's holiness. Bring Him into that environment. Christians haven't been good at that. We've been going the other way. We've become too much like the world. And I know that because that's a word I can speak to myself very often. So today what I'm saying is, is that the, the, Jesus says the stuff that comes out of you is what defiles you. Well, you have control of that. You have control. You have agency. You have responsibility. So, just as Cain was told to take control of that, so must we take control of our sin crouching at the door. And if we do, if we care about the glory of God and the holiness of God, then we'll take that into the world. We'll show the world what it looks like, just like Joseph did just like Nehemiah did, just like Daniel did. More of that, just as Jesus did. Doesn't mean they'll love us. Doesn't mean we're called into the world. Not out of it. We've got to get things right. We've got to get prejudices taken care of. We have to get that idea of the them and us taken care of. We've got time to do it right now. We need to consider what it means to be a good Samaritan in this time. How can, how can I help my neighbor, whoever my neighbor is? What can I do? But it comes down to one thing. Get rid of your prejudices. Let those things go. Stop judging everybody. Hold yourself to the standard of God. And then show what a life lived in obedience to his will, his law, and his commandments looks like so that the world can see that's the way to be. That's truly the blessed way to live. And allow God to be big. Thanks for listening. If you've got any comments, questions, or um, prayer needs, respond through the Facebook page, which is linked here on this page as website. So um, look forward to hearing from you. Pray that you have a blessed week and that the Lord opens your eyes to the things that need to change that are in your heart. Take care and God bless.